0: This morning from Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he let us pray glorious father we truly thank you that you have called us into your presence through the perfect work and person of jesus christ our great high priest the lamb of god who died to take away our sin for lord we thank you that you have summoned us in christ for you are holy you are the high and holy lord and king of kings And thus, before your holiness in our sin, we would be struck down, we would be consumed by your wrath. But you have adopted us as your children, you have clothed us in Christ, and thus we can enter your courts this Lord's Day with thanksgiving, with joy, with the confidence that we are forgiven and there is no more condemnation for us. So, Lord, we pray then that your spirit would be upon us, that we would come into your presence and we'd sing forth your praise. We'd lift up our hearts, our voices, all that we are to adore and worship you. So, Lord, be with us now and may we glorify you forevermore. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. He didn't. Our Lord's law comes to this morning from <clears throat> Ephesians chapter four. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. As we hear our Lord's law, it shows us his righteousness and our sin in light of it, and our need for forgiveness. So let us bow our heads and confess our own sins, first in a moment of silence, and then together, let's pray. Glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the creator of all and that your throne is established in justice and righteousness. We thank you, O Lord, that your law is good and perfect and that you have revealed it to us through your word. But Lord, in light of your holiness, before your perfection as our Heavenly Father, we are undone. Our sin is exposed and we fall short of your glory. We thank you, O Lord, that you've given us Christ and the assurance of forgiveness so that we are not completely consumed before you, but you have given us the assurance, the sure promise that when we confess, you hear us and forgive us in Christ. So, Lord, resting in the mercy of Christ, we now come before you and we confess that another week has passed And we again have been your sinful children. Indeed, you have made us your children, and we thank you for that grace. And yet, O Lord, too often, instead of being children of light, we have walked in darkness. Instead of being children that reflect your godliness, so often we entertain the wickedness of the world. Thus, we confess that we've sinned against you in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. Lord, we've been angry and sinned in our anger. There has been bitterness and clamor in our hearts. Instead of providing and for those that uh, providing for them who um, with our resources and showing charity and generosity, so often oh Lord, we're lazy. We are selfish, we're greedy. We hoard things for ourselves and we do not share with others who have need. We confess, O oh Lord, that we have not been tender-hearted towards one another. Indeed, you tell us to forgive, but so often, O oh Lord, we're slow to forgive. We can hold things against each other, or have grudges, and fail to forgive each other when when they confess to us. And so, O oh Lord, we pray then that you would forgive us, that we would humble ourselves before you and you would again pour the mercy and tenderheartedness of Christ upon us so that we might know that your forgiveness is forever and permanent, rooted in the perfect and once-for-all work of Christ. And then, having received your forgiveness, we pray, O Lord, that your Spirit would equip us with the fervor and the boldness to walk in your obedience, that we might love you more, that we might please you more, and that we might again turn from our sin and walk in that everlasting way. So hear our confession this morning hour. Forgive us in Christ, and then by your Spirit enable us to be your obedient children. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now the reading of the Gospel this morning from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. Beloved saints of the Lord, rejoice this day that having confessed your sins in faith, Because Jesus is your Lord and Savior, because he died for you and rose for your justification, you can know and rejoice that you are forgiven. As a gift of grace through Christ, you are forgiven in his name, and you can rejoice that the Heavenly Father is smiling upon you as his sons and daughters. This is the gospel proclaimed to you this Lord's Day. Let us now stand and sing hymn 248. Let us stand and sing 248. So in the Old Testament, we turned to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, reading verses 21 through verse 28, the end of the chapter. God's holy and inspired word from the Old Testament. Give your attention to the reading of it. God's word, Ezra, chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. And I... Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest scribe of the law of, of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that, you shall not, that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of the house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us again uh, stand and sing, this time Psalm 119N. 119N. Let us stand and sing. Thank you. Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 13 through verse 17. Verses 13 through 17 of Mark 12, once again God's word. Mark 12, beginning in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. As for the reading of God's holy word, may it bless it to us. Let's pray. Glorious Father, we thank you that you have given us your word as a light into our path. Indeed, it is by your word that you create faith in us. It's by your truth that you sanctify us. And it's by your whole counsel that you build us up in holiness and comfort. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us teachable hearts, tender minds, so that we might hear your word in joy and faith, that your word might be written upon our hearts and our our minds, so that we might remember it, so that we we might rejoice in it, and then go forth to live according to your word. May you be also with the preaching of your word. May it be done for the strengthening of your dear saints and the magnifying of your most holy name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. So do you have any loose change on you? In your purse or pocket, are you carrying some quarters or nickels? Well, there's a good chance that you're not. Most of us use cards or apps for everyday purchases, and when we do use cash, we quickly liberate our pockets from the change. Ashtrays and bowls hold our coins until you cash them in. Yet on the infrequent day when you do use your quarters, you probably give no thought to what is on one of those silver pieces. Unless you collect coins, what president or what image is on the back makes no difference. And certainly such pictures have nothing really to do with our faith. But this has not always been the case. Our indifference towards coinage varies greatly from previous times in which our spiritual ancestors lived. If you brought the wrong coin to a Passover in the first century, you could split the family down the middle. And one of these coins is presented to our Lord precisely to get him ensnared in such a divisive issue. And yet, from our Lord's skilled answer, he lays out the nature of our lives in the church age with eyes Ever on heaven. So, as you'll remember in the last week, with the rather transparent parable, our Lord just condemned the temple authorities who would kill the Son of God and reject the stone that God would make the cornerstone. Well, the priests got a hint, and they weren't happy about it. So, they withdrew to further strategize on how to do away with Jesus. And they must have been prepared for, post-haste, they dispatch. Another hunting team. Mark is forthright about the mission of this SWAT team. They arrive on the scene to trap Jesus in his words. Surely they can trick Jesus into saying something that they can use against him. No man has ever tamed the tongue, and so they will poke and prod Jesus until his tongue trips over his teeth. And yet from our best estimation, the makeup of this squad is a bit of a head-scratcher. It is comprised of Pharisees and the Herodians, which seems like an unlikely alliance, a bit like Tom teaming up with Jerry. Now, we are more familiar with the Pharisees. They lived a very austere life and strict dedication to keeping the whole law. They were more popular with the public, and the Pharisees tended to run the synagogues from town to town. However, the conservative theology and rigorous piety of the Pharisees had spawned a sect within a sect. The broader party of the Pharisees had a wing that was more zealous for the law, even radical. This was the zealot party, or what has been called the Jewish Freedom Movement, the JFM. And the JFM was not so different than the IRA. To begin with, one of the fundamental tenets of the Zealots with their Pharisaic theology that was that God alone was their king. Yahweh was their sole sovereign, and so they would not call any man Lord. They would honor no one else as Lord and king. And flowing from this fundamental commitment, they abhorred and sought to destroy all images of gods and men. They were iconoclasts of a very violent sort. Another practical extension of their devotion to God alone as king was their hatred to pay taxes. In fact, the JFM really got its start about 20 years or so before our Lord, when for the first time Rome started direct taxation of Judea. At that time, a Messianic figure arose who declared taxation as equivalent to slavery and apostasy from God. To pay Caesar was to forfeit God and his protection. And so he proclaimed liberty from Rome and started revolts in order to resist. And then in the following years, the JFM increased its activity and influence. Messianic pretenders arose every few years out of the zealot party. They would commit terror acts against Roman images and strike at Roman authorities. Now, by no means were all Pharisees radical zealots, but they did share many of the same priorities, and by AD 70, most of the Pharisees had been enlisted in the JFM. The Pharisees, then, were loyal to the Jewish state centered on the temple where Rome was an unwelcomed visitor. On the other hand, you have the Herodians. These were lay aristocrats, Jewish, who supported and were connected to the house of Herod the Great and his sons. And whatever you can say about King Herod, he was quite good at balancing Rome and the Jews. For the Jews, King Herod married a Jewish woman, practiced Judaism, and rebuilt the temple to a glory above and beyond. Now, King Herod died in 4 BC, but his sons still ruled local regions, as Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee, and his brother ruled just to the east. Therefore, the Herodians were aristocrats who still held various positions of honor and authority. The Herodians then also supported a Jewish state centered on the temple, but they saw their well-being connected to that of Rome. For them, the best way to preserve a Jewish realm orbiting around the temple was to submit to Rome and to live with some of Rome's unfortunate limitations. You could say the Herodians were realists versus the idealists of the Pharisees and the JFM. Sure, from a Pharisaic perspective, the Herodians likely had weak theology and compromised piety. They were rich, after all. But they, too, were committed to the temple. And this is why these two groups team up. The Pharisees and the Herodians argued about a lot. Socially, they were probably vinegar and oil. But they could work together on the temple. Jesus appears to be a threat to the temple, and so they will hold their noses and tag-team against Jesus. And they start their word snare with some good old-fashioned flattery. Oh, teacher, we know you're so honest and truthful. You're so authentic and real. You're not concerned about people's opinions. Only God's truth will do. And you're no respecter of persons. You don't show favoritism based on social class, gender, status, or wealth. And the way of God just rolls off your tongue. They praise our Lord for three things, being truthful, no favoritism, and teaching God's way. Now, these are true, but it's not how they intended. Instead, this is flattery to manipulate. This is peanut butter on the mousetrap. They applaud his honesty so that he will be open and hopefully speak falsely into their trap. Also, they don't actually believe their own compliments. They intend these words as a lie. Jesus doesn't actually teach God's ways from their point of view. Intending a lie, they speak the truth, and by a compliment, their purpose is harm. They butter up our Lord so that he will roast hotter over the fire. Yet after their poor acting, they get to the question. Rubbing their hands together, this issue will impale Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or not? Now these two questions are connected, but they're not exactly the same. The first one is more theoretical or doctrinal. What does the law say? Are Caesar's taxation formally legal or not under the Mosaic law? Well, the second is more practical. Should we pay or not? Now, typically these go together, but there are exceptions that can distinguish them. Either way, the Pharisees and the Herodians declare that Hamlet got it wrong. The question is not to be or not to be, but it is to pay or not to pay. This is the real, down-to-earth question. And with this, the team puts an explicit political question to our Lord. This is straight-down-the-middle politics. Their scheme will get our Lord wrapped up in politics to take a political side, either with the JFM or the Herodians he cannot stay uh, answer this and stay neutral but he has to pick a side and become embroiled in the divisive and highly volatile issue of roman
1: taxes
0: to answer this question is to be hated by one party or the other they've got him now our lord's sil- silence on politics Is coming to an end. Nevertheless, whether they know it or not, this question is actually an issue of Old Testament theology. This quiz over taxation gets at the political theology of the Old Testament. First, there's the zealot position God alone is king, no taxes, smash images and idols, and rebel with violence. This take is basically the theocratic ethic of the Old Testament kingdom of God. Now, there's no explicit law forbidding taxes to a foreign monarch. And yet taxes or foreign taxes were a curse of the covenant imposed for disobedience as well as paying tribute to Assyria or Egypt for protection instead of trusting the Lord, was considered covenant apostasy. This is seen best with with the judges and the first kings. When the Midianites annexed part of Israel and demanded taxes, what did God call Gideon to do? Well, Gideon demolished idolatrous shrines and then went out to battle against the Midianites. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. If Saul or David had paid taxes to the Philistines instead of violent revolution, it would have been a great failure. Thus the JFM have Gideon and David as their poster heroes. This is the theocratic ethic of political theology in the Old Testament. But on the other side, there is Jeremiah and the exile. At the exile, God made an alteration. He changed the theocratic ethic to one of exile and pilgrim. In Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, the Lord told them to plant gardens, to pray for the state, which was actually Babylon, and their well-being depended on the well-being of the state. In exile, the pilgrims paid Babylonian taxes, which was for their own good. And after exile, this ethic didn't change. Zerubbabel, who built the second temple, was a Persian governor in charge of collecting Persian taxes. Nehemiah was sent from the Persian emperor to build the wall and ensure taxes were paid. And as we read with, about with Ezra, he too was a Persian bureaucrat who had the duty to collect taxes and even give tax exemption to the priest. Therefore, the Herodians have on their side Jeremiah, Nehemiah, and Ezra. This is the pilgrim ethic where our loyalty to God, we submit to pagan overlords, pay taxes, and practice religion distinct from the realm of the kingdom or politics? Well, this is quite the case, or cast of heroes. This is a big Old Testament theology question. Will Jesus side with Gideon and David, a sword for the Lord and for Jesus? Or will he toss his hat in with Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and Ezra and Nehemiah, political employees, Of the Persian government. Well, both the theocratic and pilgrim ethic have solid roots in the Old Testament. Both have distinguished traditions. To pay or not to pay? This is the fundamental question of the day. And it is one that the zealots were increasingly pushing to a breaking point. And what a juicy question. Our theological taste buds are salivating. Our Lord, though, seems a bit perturbed. He knows that it's just a test, and he can see through their hypocrisy as clear as day. Their insincerity and play-acting win them an anti-academy award. And so he chides them for their wicked testing, but he will answer their political hot potato. He first asks to see a Roman denarius, Now, this was the main Roman coin, and it was used to pay the poll tax. So they present him with a coin, and he asks about the artwork. Whose image is on the coin, and what is the inscription upon it? They answer the obvious, it's Caesar's image. Yet by this visual display of the denarius, Jesus may be giving his first answer. The current emperor at this time is Tiberius. And a Tiberian denarius had an image of Emperor Tiberius, and its inscription read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back was a picture of a lady symbolizing the goddess Roma, which said Pontifus Maximus. For Jesus, to visually highlight the coin, seems to distance him from the zealots. From what we know, In the iconoclasm of the JFM, the most extreme zealots abhorred images so much they refused to use the Denarius. The coin was like a portable idol, which they wouldn't touch. Thus, to use the coin as a visual prop, Jesus shows himself not to be an iconoclast. Our Lord's application of the second commandment doesn't extend to this coin. Finally, Jesus gives his timeless and witty answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, this is a pithy little saying, which makes it a touch obscure, like a proverb. Yet, in the context, the most basic meaning is clear. They asked about paying taxes. He displays the coin to pay taxes and says pay to Caesar. Jesus tells them to pay their taxes even to the Roman emperor. And with this, our Lord does not stay neutral, but he sides with the Herodians. He condemns the revolutionary position of the zealots. Jesus is not an insurrectionist Messiah who is a card-carrying member of the underground JFM. He says no to the theocratic position and yes to the pilgrim ethic to side with Jeremiah and Ezra. And according to the pilgrim ethic, our loyalty to the Lord as king doesn't prohibit obeying earthly kings. Rather, we can honor both the emperor and be undivided in our devotion to God. Also, the pilgrim ethic is not iconoclastic, nor is it revolutionary. Indeed, by telling us to pay taxes, Jesus publishes that Caesar is a legitimate authority under the universal lordship of God. Caesar may be a pagan who spreads idolatry and who even demanded that he himself be worshipped, and yet... He is God's minister still to be obeyed. And with this, Jesus establishes the church and our lives under the pilgrim ethic. He excludes from the church the theocratic ethic. He separates the church from the state and calls us to live in both realms, the common and the holy. In fact, to declare this remark in the temple while talking about estate taxes, Jesus is basically saying, pay your taxes and pay your offerings. Tithes go to God and income tax goes to Caesar. These are not in competition, but go together. Nevertheless, in addition to establishing the pilgrim ethic for us, our Lord does limit and relativize state power. First, he limits by saying the things of Caesar. Caesar's property, his stuff, has a boundary, a fence around it. His estate only goes so far. Thus, there are things that do not belong to Caesar, which do not have to be rendered to him. Second, he relativizes Caesar by affirming that we render to God His things. But God's things are universal. Heaven and earth belong to the Lord. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God is the Lord of our whole being, and we owe all to him. Thus the state is a lower authority that we obey for the sake of our priority, the Lord God. Therefore the holy things that belong to God, like faith, worship, and undying fealty, these we will never render to Caesar, but keep for God alone. Yet there's another feature of this pilgrim ethic that Jesus establishes here for us. Under Babylon, the exiles were to pay taxes and pray for the state because it was only for a time. The pilgrim looked forward to seeing something greater, more permanent, that God had in store for his people. Pilgrims pay taxes to the state because it's too small. Caesar and his things are only for this age, and so Caesar can have his monetary things. Such temporary taxes and respect cannot even compare with the eternal glories that Christ has in store for us. Thus, even when the Hebrew exiles got the land back and the temple back under Persia, Ezra and Nehemiah paid taxes in hope of greater realities, of a time when taxes will be no more. Therefore, as Jesus respects the Roman IRS, while standing in the temple in the physical land of Canaan, he's announcing that this is not his kingdom. Rome, the temple, and the earthly land is too small for our Lord. It's not enough. Rather, he as I set on the age to come, on the new heavens and the new earth. So also as pilgrims, we give the state its things because they are temporary, penultimate matters in light of the eternal things that Christ is one for. And our Lord proves his point here with his very life. In saying, pay your taxes, Jesus sides with the Herodians over against the zealous Pharisees. Jesus takes a political position here, the political theology of the pilgrim ethic, over against the theocratic. And by so doing, our Lord weakens his position with the crowds who favored the Pharisees. The crowds had sympathies for the JFM, and to lose favor with the crowds was the goal of the priest in order to arrest Jesus. Thus, Jesus willingly takes a step closer to the cross here. Hence, during his trial, the priest will charge Jesus as being an insurrectionist. The plaque at the cross that reads King of the Jews is the verdict that Jesus did not render things to Caesar. Thus, who will the crowds cheer for to be released? They chant the name of Barabbas, who was actually an insurrectionist and terrorist. Barabbas was an active agent in the JFM. Jesus will be wrongly executed as a revolutionary, and the people will release into their custody a violent zealot. Saying, pay your taxes, is part of what God Jesus killed. But he did so happily, because this world, with its states and taxes, was not enough for him. Our Lord welcomed death as a pilgrim in order to win for himself something far better, heaven and you. Yes, you as the living stones of the heavenly temple, you are the prize of Christ. Jesus paid tax and he died to redeem you, body and soul, for himself forever. This is the work and the love of Christ for you, He gave the state its money and he gave his body for the sake of God so that he might earn the eternal things, new creation and you and I. Thus may we praise our dear Savior and King and then rooted in him with eyes on heaven, may we live out the pilgrim life as the church and as individuals until he comes again. Amen. Let us pray. Glorious Father, we thank you for a Savior who died for us. Indeed, even though he was obedient and fulfilled all righteousness, even though he spoke the truth and the ways of God, and yet is for the truth that the priest in the world executed him as a criminal, as an insurrectionist of the worst sort. But Lord, we thank you that not only that Christ died for us, we thank you that his inheritance was not this creation, it was not the land of Palestine, but it was the true promised land, the very land that Abraham truly had eyes for, a land whose builder and architect is God. Thus we thank you, O Lord, that Christ, for the joy set before him, heaven endured the cross, and was labeled a criminal for us, who bore our sins so that we might have forgiveness and justification in him. But Lord, we thank you also for the teaching of Christ, especially at these key times in redemptive history when things changed. Indeed, under the theocracy, you did set up a theocratic ethic where it was wrong for the Hebrews of old to pay tribute to foreign powers for protection, and honor. And yet, O Lord, you changed this with Ezra and Nehemiah and the exile, and yet it was in Kwanji, it was debated, and we thank you then that Christ came forth and made clear the ethic for our life. That as the church, we do not live under a theocracy, but we are pilgrims, we are exiles. And thus, O Lord, we can show loyalty to you, We can be undivided in our devotion to you, even as we respect and honor those who have power. When we pay our taxes even to wicked and and pagan emperors and states. So, Lord, we pray for those who rule over us. For, Lord, we admit that even the country that we live in, which we're so thankful for, indeed, you've given us so many blessings compared to other states and governments, you have spoiled us. And yet, O Lord, we can still lament at the evil that goes on in the halls of government at all levels. For it is run by men, and men are sinners. And so we pray that you would restrain wickedness, that you would promote the rule of law. And we pray that as pilgrims, we would pray for, pay our taxes, and respect, and be godly citizens and residents of this state in which you have made us. But, Lord, we pray for your church, for where this age and this state and this country is passing away, the church is eternal. For, Lord, we as the pilgrim church will become the triumphant church in the resurrection. And so we pray for the growth of your church, for the sanctifying and the saving of your saints. May that be true here. May you continue to gather in the elect through our local congregation By inviting people to church, through evangelism, through all different means, may you bring in the lost. And may we see new baptisms and people join the church. But Lord, also help us as your saints. May you sanctify us. May you build us up in holiness and comfort. May you do this by continuing to multiply in us the fruits of the Spirit. Indeed, may we walk together as brothers and sisters, Without favoritism and with generosity and charity, and may we continue to love each other. We think of those particular petitions that arise through the weeks of life. We pray, O Lord, for those who are sick and ill. We pray for John and his recovery from this stroke, and we pray for Becky, his mom, that you would comfort her and help her in this time. We pray for that family. We lift up our expectant mothers. May you grant them healthy pregnancies, safe deliveries, and healthy covenant children at the time. Help us as families. Be with us as husbands and fathers and and wives and mothers. Help, Help us to fulfill these roles in ways that are pleasing to you and that are not compromising with the world. Pray for those who are single May they serve you well in their singleness. Teach them contentment and purity. We pray for our grandparents. Bless them as they are in their uh, golden years. We pray, O Lord, that you would help them to still serve you well in their families and in the church. And we pray that the wisdom of of their age would pass on to us so that we might pass it on to the next generation. We continue to pray for the growth of your church, not just locally, but through the OPC broadly. And so we pray for our church plants and our own presbytery. We think of the work in Pasadena and Reverend Matt Cotta. We pray that you would strengthen that local church plant, that the saints would be bound bound together in the spirit and in truth, that the preaching and teaching and shepherding would gather in and strengthen those saints who would be faithful and true. We pray you would raise up elders and deacons among them, and when that time comes, grant them to become a particular church. We thank you that you send out foreign missionaries, and we can be mindful and prayerful for them. So the work in Uganda, may you strengthen that work. May you enable Reverend Charles Jackson to be a bold evangelist, a faithful pastor, and that those saints would grow and you would develop uh, new, member, new ministers and new elders and deacons from, the, from those in Uganda. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would glorify yourself by building your church there in Uganda. But Lord, even as we lift up the church, we know that the lot you've given us is one of hardship, one of suffering, that you have given us the privilege to be like our Savior. As he suffered in life and was glorified in the resurrection, so we suffer in our life, and await for glory in our own resurrection. So, Lord, teach your church and us to be faithful. May we be faithful to you until the end. And may we ever keep our hearts and our eyes focused upon that end, upon heaven and Christ who is seated at your right hand, O Father. So, Lord, may you come and come quickly. Teach us how to glorify you in our lives and in our deaths now. And then, O oh Lord, teach us to be faithful to pray the Lord's Prayer as you've taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever amen Let's so now stand to uh, confess together the nicene creed nicene creed page 852 beloved saints of the lord What do you believe? Believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic Church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen, you may be seated. arguably now stand to th- uh, to sing him 446 446